a co-production of Latitude Media and Canary Media. Since we're talking about tough stuff, what's the toughest thing you've ever had to build in your life? I was going to say the tree house that I built with my dad when I was a kid, but I don't think I did that much work. A few years ago, um, my husband and I remodeled um, a family house in Ohio and built an Ikea kitchen. And there's like thousands of parts involved in doing that. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> a few few shattered uh, glass doors in the process, but it, it came together. Wait, a whole Ikea kitchen? I, I, I'm on an Ikea standing desk, which took me like four hours to put together. I can't imagine a whole kitchen. Yes, it's a, it's a journey. Sounds like stuff of nightmares. Um, but yeah, I was thinking back to, I think it was middle school. My friend Alex and I decided to just build a little trebuchet for fun, which is like a kind of medieval siege siege engine uh, akin to a catapult, but like it it kind of swings through, if you can picture that. And and we took it down to the park and like flung tennis balls. Did it work? It, it got the balls through the air. I don't think it was like necessarily farther than you could do it with a lacrosse stick or something. But, you know, it, it propelled items. This is The Carbon Copy. And this week, we're tackling the tough stuff. The industrial sector is set to overtake power generation and transportation as the biggest source of planet warming emissions in the U.S. by 2035. The sector's impact is even greater on the global scale. Industry around the world accounts for more carbon dioxide emissions than all forms of transportation combined. And that's largely driven by steel, cement, and chemicals. There are a lot of ways to decarbonize industry, but the pathways are much less clear than for electricity or automobiles. And in this episode, we're exploring the varied paths for cleaning up the products that are foundational to the world around us. Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. I'm Stephen Lacey, executive editor at Latitude Media, and I'm here with my friends and colleagues from Canary Media, Maria Gallucci, Jeff St. John, Julian Spector. Maria is a clean energy reporter who focuses largely on the hard-to-decarbonize sectors. This is your week to shine, the Tough Stuff Week, Maria. Yes, my, my call to fame. Jeff St. John is the director of news and special projects at Canary Media. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having us. And Julian Spector is a senior reporter at Canary, covering a wide range of topics, including storage, manufacturing, and industry. And you are in Portugal, which surprised us when you signed on. I am a little bit jealous of your travels. It's it's been fun. It's been fun. But, um, you know, uh, the reporting keeps me rooted in uh, the world of American industry and energy transition. And uh, I've been covering the, the hydrogen side of this industrial uh, decarbonization um, topic because a lot of movement on that front. So yeah, let's set a little context here, and then we'll dig into some different areas. Um, getting to net zero emissions in the power sector or in transportation is an extremely heavy lift, but it's become increasingly clear how we get there. And most of the emission reductions here in America 
that we'll see, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, are going to occur in those areas, uh, according to the Rhodium Group. And industry is a very different story. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Rhodium projects that the industrial sector is going to be America's highest emitter by 2035. And that's because steel, cement, chemicals, the dominant industry polluters, require extremely high heat, require massive capital investments, and rely on equipment that lasts a very long time. And of course, we need heavy industry to support the build-out of batteries, renewable energy power plants, efficient buildings that are going to get constructed in the coming decades. So its role is more important than ever, but the pathway to decarbonize it is still uh, unproven. So Maria, Jeff, and Julian have spent a lot of time digging into the different solution sets for industry, and we're going to riff on many of them today. So I want to start with just talking about the different sectors that you focused on. We're looking at cement concrete, uh, chemicals, steel, and hydrogen. Um, So Maria, you took on a bunch of different sectors. Why don't you start? Uh, You you focus on cement and concrete, ethylene, and steel. Where's the the best place to start? What's the hardest one? Oh, the hardest one? I would say chemicals, probably because it's not just... um, I mean, all of these industries are difficult, but chemical manufacturing means many things and there's many different pieces. And to be honest, we just kind of scratched the surface of that with this themed week. We spent more reporting on steel and cement and concrete, um, in part, I think, because there is a lot more activity and movement around efforts to decarbonize, whereas the chemical industry seems like just starting to wrap its head around this possibility of decarbonizing. Yeah. So why did you focus on ethylene? Yeah, ethylene is uh, a key building block of a lot of the other chemicals that are made in everyday materials like diapers, detergent, most of the plastic materials that we have, PVC pipes, even airplane wings have some ethylene. So that seems like a great place to start because ethylene is in a lot of stuff. (laughs) Ethylene is in a lot of the materials that we use. It's also the um, most consumed primary petrochemical Uh, a kind of among these groups of what are called high value chemicals, it's the most consumed. So that seemed like a good place to start. And also because in my reporting, I noticed there were some interesting initiatives to try and electrify parts of ethylene production. And so that seemed like a, a cool opportunity to focus on an area where there actually are solutions, or I should say there are steps toward solutions within the chemical space. And so in the chemical space for ethylene, in particular, we're not necessarily talking about uh, a change in chemistry. We're mostly talking about electrification. Is that right? Right. So in my story, I focused on sort of the most emissions-intensive part of ethylene production kind of within the the walls of the plant itself, and that is uh, generating high heat to crack ethane gas into ethylene molecules, which are then processed into other chemicals. And so this sort of this process of generating heat to crack ethane accounts for 90% of the carbon dioxide emissions associated with an ethylene steam cracking facility. So I focused on initiatives to electrify that portion. But you're completely right that um, a, a huge part of sort of the life cycle emissions of ethylene and all chemicals come from the fact that they are oil and gas feedstocks. And they even electrification can't fully address some of these other issues that come with ethylene and, and plastics more generally. And that is 
They generate a lot of toxic air pollution. They generate a lot of plastic waste that ends up in waterways, in our bloodstreams, et cetera. Yeah, I thought the approach to this sector was interesting because it it's very small in terms of actual heat-trapping gases compared to some of these other industrial sectors. But it's 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 a, it's an industry it's a sector that's only just now toying with decarbonization and electrification and you quote one expert who said if you had mentioned electrification in the chemical industry a few years ago no one would have taken it seriously but that's changed pretty dramatically so uh starting to see some shifts there so let's turn to steel now uh maria you were on the show a couple of weeks ago and we talked in depth about the different methods for producing green steel and the efforts to procure more green steel to actually create demand. Um, So you and Jeff took a look at the different elements of clean steel production. Maria, why don't you just give us a quick overview? And then Jeff, I want to turn to you about um, some of the the production methods that you looked at. Sure. So um, the steel industry is responsible for as much as 9% of CO2 emissions worldwide every year. And the majority of those emissions come from the sort of the the blast furnaces and the basic oxygen furnaces, which heat and process coal products, fossil fuels, to essentially turn raw iron ore into iron that becomes steel, that becomes high-strength material in buildings and cars and bridges and roads and many, many things. Uh, So that's sort of when you think about cleaning up steel or decarbonizing steel, really the, the big question is what do you do to get away from the blast furnaces and basic oxygen furnaces. I I looked at a particular approach to creating not green steel per se, but green iron, um, the precursor to feeding into an electric arc furnace. And this particular process is called electro winning. um, And it's essentially putting metal ores into kind of a solution and then zapping it with electricity in a way that separates out the pure uh, metal you know, molecules from everything else that's in the ore. Um, Electrowinning is used today to uh, process copper, nickel, and zinc. Iron has been a much tougher uh, climb. There are a lot of complex scientific reasons why iron is harder to electrowin out of uh, solution than other metals. But this company called Electra uh, out of Boulder, Colorado, is working on a process that it's piloted, uh, showing that it can get pretty pure iron, like 99-point-odd percent pure, out of this electrolysis process. Um, And there are some other companies working on it as well, and uh, a big consortium in Europe. And the idea there is that you could not only get pure iron to feed into these electric arc furnaces to make steel, but you could maybe process even lower-quality iron ores than are kind of practical to process today using uh, you know, basic oxygen furnaces or the direct reduction of iron process using hydrogen, which is kind of the big, big way that people are talking about doing green steel today. I know that Electra raised a bunch of money from Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Amazon and some other investors. Are they, what are they promising right now and how close to commercialization are they? Well, they're working on a pilot plant. Um, They say the technology works, and there are some other folks, uh, actually Fortescue, uh, the big iron mining and hydrogen giant out of Australia, has mentioned that it has a process which sounds something similar to electro-winning for making pure iron. I guess the question about commercialization is, how do you scale that up, and how does the kind of iron and steel industry see its value 
you know, uh, it's interesting that you can kind of build these things on a modular basis, kind of like batteries. You line up a whole bunch of these things and you produce iron out of them. And uh, that can be done at much lower temperatures. And you can kind of, you know, go as big as you want to go, which is different than building a big old, you know, uh, direct reduction of iron kind of plant. Um, and then if you can find a business case for using those lower quality iron ores, that could be a real selling point. But it's going to take a significant commitment of capital from somebody who's in the iron and steel business to uh, answer that question. And, and Jeff, a very important part of this, uh, did, did they come up with the term electro-winning? That just seems like a great a great brand, great great uh, kind of thing to put out into the market. Um, very positive. But uh, where did that <laughs> name come from? They did not come up with electro-winning. That's the term of art that was uh, that has uh, evolved from this uh, kind of ongoing kind of area of you know research and technology that's been around for hundreds of years, actually. But the resulting metals are said to be electro-won. So I guess if you want to be winning, it's a great technology to bank on. I think we all want to be electro-winning. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then, in theory, they can take this iron that they're creating through the electro-winning process and feed it into electric arc furnaces, and then those electric arc furnaces can be run with renewables, right? Like, that's that's the idea? Indeed. That is also the idea behind, you know, direct reduction of iron using hydrogen as well. The big shift is from those big, you know, blast furnaces, which burn a lot of coal, um, to the electric arc furnaces, which run on electricity. And that mention of hydrogen brings us to Julian, who took a look at the green hydrogen market or the lack there of um, significant promises, significant plans to develop green hydrogen projects, but not a lot of demand out in the market right now. So what did you find in terms of where the hydrogen market stands and where it could potentially benefit some of these industrial applications in the near term? Yeah, so I, I was able to let my colleagues do the hard work of figuring out uh, why specifically these industrial pathways require uh, a clean source of hydrogen. My job was just to find out, do we have enough? Where is it coming from? Do we have any, really? Um, and I, I did come around to thinking there, there is something happening here. I, I think as a skeptical reporter, a lot of the hype cycle around green hydrogen seemed pretty dubious in the last few years, just because there, there's so much talk and no one was actually going out and building facilities to produce green hydrogen. It, it seemed like a way for, um, say, a, a fossil gas utility to keep investing in gas infrastructure because it could say, hey, one day it'll be all hydrogen. Don't worry. Uh, and what I found is uh, today there actually are a lot of companies going out and developing hydrogen production to make money on it. Just the way that there are a lot of people developing, you know, wind and solar projects or battery projects, um, and it, it it does seem to be kind of the the newest up and coming form of clean energy de development business uh, afoot. And then that actually got a major uh, boost uh, just a few days ago when uh, President Biden announced these uh, hydrogen hubs, where the DOE is is putting a total of seven billion dollars into these regional clusters of hydrogen production and use and, and transportation and distribution uh, in different corners of America. Um, so yeah, now we should say there there is 
dirty hydrogen and then a whole spectrum to, to very clean hydrogen. Um, so those the, the term green hydrogen gets thrown around and it can be a little fuzzy, but you know, at, at best we're talking about taking clean electricity, carbon-free electricity, running that electricity through water, through through the electrolysis process, and that produces hydrogen that is uh, has very low carbon impact. Um, and yeah, we actually don't have capacity to do that in the U.S. today. Um, there's a lot of fossil-based uh, carbon-emitting hydrogen in the U.S. today. Uh, I couldn't find any like commercial scale, like real operation pumping out green hydrogen yet. Um, but I found a lot of companies that are either constructing right now or about to break ground. And then a whole bunch more are, are moving ahead now they know about the Department of Energy funding for, for those hubs. Yeah, and we also took a look at the electrolyzer market at Latitude Media recently. And what we found is something similar to what you wrote about, which is kind of a chicken and egg problem. Uh, some of the, you know, there's there's a concern from project developers that there's not going to be enough demand. And um, there's not a lot of demand because there's not a lot of production. So we're stuck in this kind of holding pattern. Did you find, you know, did you, are you hearing the same thing? I think I think we're going to break out of that pretty soon. Um, today, it's been hard for the people who make the electrolyzers to produce a ton of electrolyzers because they're if there's no one actually using electrolyzers in the U.S., uh, who do you sell to? Um, although there is some, you know, happening in Europe and elsewhere in the world. But um, basically, there's now so many developers who are buying up whatever electrolyzers they can get their hands on that I think that's that's starting to give much more of a, a signal to to the manufacturers to ramp up their production. And then on the other side of it, you need the industrial customers to say, hey, I want to buy the hydrogen, the carbon-free or, or, or very low-carbon hydrogen. So that's another chicken and egg problem because, like we talked about, you know, there's people talking about substituting hydrogen uh, to reduce the iron ore to make the green steel, but no one's doing that in a kind of big commercial way yet. Um, so you can't really sell your green hydrogen to green steel makers until they're, they're ready to use it. And so one kind of interim route I found is is there is a market today for for vehicles for for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles that need liquid hydrogen and it turns out the the price point for liquid hydrogen today is significantly higher than the kind of gaseous and industrial hydrogen that's produced by fossil fuels in Houston and the Gulf Coast and stuff so um a, a few of the companies like Air Liquide and uh, Plug Power are, are constructing their green hydrogen today to sell it as a liquid for the fuels market, where they um, think they they could be much more competitive against the higher priced uh, market that exists for that right now. Mark your calendars for June thirteenth at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. 
So let's turn to the last sector that y'all are covering, and then I want to dig deeper into each of these um, cement and concrete. So I had a good friend who ran a concrete business, and he poured foundations and sidewalks and stuff. And if you ever called what he was pouring cement, he would get very upset because the final product is concrete. But cement is um, a very important part of the full concrete mix, and it is the most emissions-intensive piece of uh, concrete. And so um, I know that, that Jeff and Maria, you both looked at different parts of the cement and concrete business. So um, Maria, why don't you kind of start and, and tell us a little bit about why cement itself is so emissions intensive? Sure. Yeah. And you're totally right about the the wording. This is a, a, a tricky industry to cover because there are so many different phrases. And as a, somebody, you know, who's kind of outside the cement slash concrete industry, learning a lot and trying not to uh, put my foot in my mouth. But um, so in, in general, the cement Concrete are responsible for about 8% of human-caused CO2 emissions every year. About 40% of those emissions come from burning fossil fuels to to heat the kilns. The other 60% comes from the chemical process of calcination. So that's when limestone in the cement is heated. It breaks down. It releases its, its calcium oxide and its CO2, and the CO2 goes into the atmosphere. So that's what's so tricky about cement is that that CO2 is literally baked into it and then, you know, released into the atmosphere. So the challenge then is to find ways to either reduce the use of cement or make cement with different materials so that you're not having that that challenge. Maria summed it up well, you know, calcium carbonate, i.e. limestone, CaCO3, um, is roughly speaking half carbon dioxide by weight. Um, And so the way you reduce the carbon impact of cement is in some ways to reduce the reliance on the core material and process of cement making that's been the main way that we've all made cement for hundreds of years. Well, about 150 years, to be precise. Um, but there's some real high hopes of getting at least, roughly speaking, a third to a half of that emissions down significantly in relatively short order and with not just, you know, relatively low cost, but perhaps uh, some kind of value premiums to the industry. I was talking to Vanessa Chan at uh, DOE's Office of Technology Transitions, and DOE put out this liftoff report on cement that pointed out that there are some really, you know, kind of short-term methods to essentially reduce the amount of Portland cement, that's the kind of core material, the limestone-derived material that Maria described, with alternative materials, essentially. They're called supplementary cementitious materials sometimes, or clinker substitutes, because clinker is the stuff, the CACO, that comes out of the the kilns, uh, with other stuff. You can do it right now by just adding ground-up limestone in 10 to 15% proportions to the amount of cement you're putting out there to the market. You can add uh, fly ash, the stuff that comes out of coal plants. You can add steel slag, the stuff that comes out of, you know, steel blast furnaces. You can add different types of clays that you pull out of the ground. And by reducing the proportion of Portland cement that goes into your cement mix, you're reducing the carbon emissions that is tied to the amount of that cement you put in. Um, and so these supplementary cementitious material kind of processes, 
don't just kind of cut the amount of embodied carbon, depending on the type of technology you're using, by 10 to 20 to 30, maybe sometimes even 40%. They can also give you a cost uh, and, and value premium. DOE's liftoff report says that you're going to have to spend 5 to $10 billion in capital kind of investment through 2030 to get that uh, full kind of value here in the U.S., but it could yield like a billion dollars a year and kind of uh, basically cost benefits for the industry if they do it. So Jeff, I, I was curious, I mean, we, no one wants their building to fall down or, or be kind of structurally weakened uh, to, to reduce 20% of the carbon emissions, but you know, how... how how do you convince the building industry to to really pick up these these new lower carbon options? And you know, do you need to see a building standing around for years and years before people start to trust the the newer materials? It's a combination of real world experience and the imprimatur of these standards entities that that really does it is what folks I talked to told me. Um, you're absolutely right that you don't just go changing your cement recipe willy-nilly. And, and there's more than just strength. There's durability. There's uh, set time, how long it takes between when you pour it and when it hardens to the point where you can start building the thing you wanted to build on top of it. I mean, one, one of the points that Rebecca Dell made is that cement costs are about maybe uh, 2 3 4% of an overall building cost. The cost of labor and the time it takes to build a building are a lot higher than that. You could have a, a much lower carbon cement, but if it takes three to five times as long to set, which allows you to move on to the next step, it might be a no-go for a construction company. Also for this year's, we kind of looked at, um, you know, Jeff's been talking a lot about the solutions that are um, increasingly available today. And there's also a lot of sort of next generation uh, approaches as well. You know, companies like Prometheus Materials looking at algae, of course, the I guess the unicorn of the clean energy world. Um, other companies like Forterra are trying to mimic these kind of natural biological processes that coral reefs, oysters use to create their own shells. So they're trying to do that in a lab essentially to make the calcium carbonate or the calcium rich materials that can then become are used in cement. I talked about the half that was uh, relatively uh, short-term and lower cost to do. The The other half of cement emissions is going to be a, a, a much tougher lift. DOE's liftoff report separated those into two broad categories. One is carbon capture and utilization and sequestration, basically capturing and uh, preventing the carbon that's emitted from the traditional cement making process from getting into the atmosphere. And that's a whole realm of endeavor that we are going to be talking about for all kinds of emitting industries and processes, and it comes with a, a bunch of well-known challenges. Um, the other option is what Maria was talking about, all these alternative production methods and alternative binder chemistries, basically different ways to make the cement we make today and different cements to make <laughs> using a variety of different processes. Those are going to be tough um, uh, for all the reasons we mentioned. People uh, are leery of new cement types, uh, chemistries, recipes, and they're leery of making big investments in an entirely new process that hasn't been tested against the very tough economics of cement production today. But there are some significant pilot projects going on at this point, and it will be very interesting to see how the big cement majors pick up on this in the next couple, couple years. Yeah, I think you summarized the barriers well, 
uh, high capital costs, long lifetime of equipment, tight margins, uh, an industry like in the power sector that's slow to change. Um, but when things happen, they can happen fairly fast. So I'm curious, you know, as you've out, all outlined these sectors, you've painted some of the solution sets. Is there anything that jumped out of you in your reporting that was like near term? You felt like this could happen quickly. And there, are there any solution sets that are much further in the distance and have a much greater problem with adoption? Well, I, I came away feeling a bit more uh, bullish on like low carbon, clean, clean hydrogen's ability to compete in the near term. Because um, I, I came at it with this kind of general understanding that you, you see mentioned a lot that um, current fossil-based, methane-based hydrogen production is super cheap. Um, rule of thumb, people say, you know, in the, in the vicinity of a dollar per kilogram, and that doing it cleanly is going to cost many times more than that, you know, like five more times or something. Um, and that the, the clean producers are really scrambling up a, a steep hill. Um, but yeah, what I found from talking to people who are actually trying to make green hydrogen to make money off of it is um, it's not such a scary economic challenge. Um, for one thing, the uh, credits in the Inflation Reduction Act go up to $3 a kilogram. Uh, we're still waiting on the, the highly contentious uh, rules to, to say who exactly qualifies for the highest levels of, of cleanliness. Um, but, you know, so that brings you pretty close uh, to the fossil. Um, and then, like I mentioned, the, the liquid hydrogen market isn't even really a market today. It's kind of like a, a handful of legacy producers it's tough to be a customer buying it because there's just not a lot of options. Um, so if you have a bunch of people coming in and starting to make new new hydrogen to sell to trucking or you know yeah forklifts like Plug Power does, um, that's great. There's there's demand for that already. You have people like Amazon and these big industrial people like already exploring uh, hydrogen powered vehicles for their operations with a lot of buying power. And yeah, and then at the end of the day, uh, most of the fossil-based hydrogen isn't really getting sold out to the market anyways. It's kind of being created in these petrochemical hubs and then put right back into refining or, or chemicals processes. So, you know, it's, it's in some ways a kind of mythical opponent because um, the, the, the places where the super cheap hydrogen is being made aren't necessarily a place you could go and buy it for one of these industrial processes. And if you're trying to clean up your your steel so you can sell green steel, like you can't buy the super cheap, dirty stuff anyways. So I came away thinking like there, there's actually more near-term traction based on price for green hydrogen. Um, and then there, you know, the, the, the people trying to make a living on it say they're eventually going to be the cheapest fuel ever and they're going to be cheaper than diesel and cheaper than you know, all these other options. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can't speak to that yet, but um, there's potential that it'll kind of run away faster than we expect. Maria, across the different sectors that you're covering, what jumps out at you as a solution with the nearest term commercial potential? And what is a solution that feels pretty distant and difficult? Well, it, it feels kind of funny to call hydrogen-based steelmaking nearest term, but I think I was really interested to learn in my reporting that from a technology standpoint, um, 
the pieces are there. Uh, there's a the hybrid project in Sweden is already making steel using 100% green hydrogen. Other projects are in the works. There's about 40, a uh, few dozen in the works. So that was interesting to me be, uh, to learn that it's not necessarily a technology hurdle, or the, although there are some you know things to be ironed out there. Obviously, the main challenge then is, as Julian was mentioning, making enough of the green hydrogen, getting it to where people need it, and then kind of creating the market to justify making these expensive investments and and paying more for the green steel. Uh, farther out on the horizon, we talked earlier about my story on uh, electrifying ethylene steam crackers. And while there are uh, a handful of interesting initiatives in the works, they're very early stage. And there are so many technical challenges beyond just how do you produce huge amounts of heat with electricity that still need to be ironed out. And it's it's kind of still unclear to me what will encourage companies to actually pursue these projects. Um, you know, it, it, obviously chemical companies, like every company is under pressure to achieve net zero emissions, but it's not kind of clear if, if this is the, this path will actually pan out for decarbonizing ethylene production, at least. Jeff, what about you? The alternative kind of uh, supplementary cementitious materials, it just seems like such a huge uh, opportunity that is uh, largely kind of hinging on uh, inertia uh, 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 to uh, be relieved in order for it to be really picked up in a big way. And so there are a lot of ways to drive down the emissions intensity of, of, of cement. And there's kind of closed loop uh, options as well. I think Maria covered a company that is re-injecting captured carbon into concrete, which is, of course, cement plus a bunch of rocks and aggregates and other stuff. And that can actually harden the concrete and improve its structural integrity and capture carbon for a long time. There are some really interesting options for kind of full circle carbon reduction and sequestration involved in that. I would say that the harder cells are the kind of re uh, are the brand new processes that we're talking about. Some of the brand new processes for making cement, some of the brand new processes for uh, electro winning iron. They offer a lot of promise and there are good kind of economic reasons to pursue them as well. But once again, it's that question of getting uh, these enormous global industries to really invest uh, in retooling their capital plant uh, to go after this. That's going to be tough. And, and I think a key part of that is just how massive a scale these players operate at. Um, so that was something I noticed visiting Houston earlier this year. Is, uh, they, these are just massive, massive complexes. And so if you have a cool new technology and you've piloted it you know, at, a, at a, a tiny kind of lab bench scale, there's such a long way to go before it's even just physically big enough to be interesting to these kind of big big chemical or industrial um, facilities. Um, at that point, it's also such a huge capital commitment that there has to be really clear benefits for them to just bother to to overhaul such a such a big endeavor. I'm just curious if you can characterize the kinds of solutions providers that are operating in these different spaces and 
I mean, are they mostly just like teams of engineers who've raised, you know, 50, 100 million dollars from Bill Gates and are working on some fancy technology that they hope to drop in? Um, is there a lot of sales and development happening or is it mostly just technological innovation? Does anyone want to characterize uh, some of the, the commercial landscape a little bit more in terms of companies operating? I, I could take a crack for cement real quick, cement and concrete. Uh, first of all, about half the world's global cement production takes place in China, and uh, there are some very large companies there. Um, there are a, a couple of really large kind of global cement producers, uh, Wholesome, uh, Semex, Heidelberg Materials, and uh, there are a wide array of kind of uh, uh, smaller scale players in, in the cement production industry. And then when you get to concrete, the whole kind of chain from cement to actually building stuff with it is really quite diverse and in some markets quite fragmented. I'm sure you all have driven by the ready mix concrete sites, you know, along the highway. You got to build those pretty close to where your construction markets are. And so there are a lot of them. Some of them may be owned by the same companies that make cement. Some of them may be essentially mom and pop operations. And so there's a pretty fragmented industry. And then, of course, you've got the thousands upon thousands of, of kind of contractors and, and buyers of this stuff. But there are some important distinctions to be made there. Roughly half the cement that's used in the United States, for example, is contracted by governments to build essentially roads and public works. And so there's a real interesting kind of point at which you can focus policy interventions to get governments to set essentially clean building standards or clean building material standards and not just, you know, uh, sticks, you know, uh, forbidding people from uh, selling you stuff that has a higher carbon uh, emissions impact than you want, but really carrots as well, giving people incentives to produce the lower carbon stuff. Rebecca Dell at Climate Works pointed out the real value of putting pressure on the demand side because uh, you can make this stuff anywhere in the world within certain limits of cost of transport and energy. And if you want to avoid regulations, you can probably move to different places and keep making dirty stuff. If you can get the demand side, the buyers, to really offer compelling premiums for lower carbon stuff, combined, of course, with a, a rigorous you know, process by which one affirms that these uh, low carbon products are in fact coming with a lower embodied carbon footprint. That can be a real way to drive the kind of investments we're talking about. And uh, she she's written uh, posts uh, and papers about why this is a really compelling proposition for cleaning up industry. There are what 90, 85, 90 million households in the U.S. Replacing every gas heater in every household uh, is is a pretty big. Pull. If you can get at a couple hundred major industrial producers and get them to change, that's a big hit right there. And it's it's a it's a cohesive, coherent uh, approach to driving down a lot of big emissions, really, really centrally. So the um, supply ecosystem for for hydrogen, um, it, there's a few different camps there. Um, for the electrolyzers, there's a bunch of these legacy. Uh, equipment manufacturers like Siemens or Cummins, uh, and they've been around for ages, and they make electrolyzers among the many other things they make. Um, then there's a crop of new startups that are trying to create new, better uh, electrolyzers. Um, 
uh, one's called Electric Hydrogen that's raised a bunch of money, but there's a few others like that. Um, and then uh, some of the uh, people who are out actually building hydrogen production uh, have gone vertically integrated. Um, so Plug Power, claim to fame, was selling all the, the hydrogen-powered forklifts for, for Amazon in 2017. Um, but now they have started building their own green hydrogen production to supply uh, lower-cost hydrogen to their customers. And they also acquired a, 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 an electrolyzer company. So they're able to manufacture their own electrolyzers, sell it to other people if they want, or just like put them into their own projects. Um, so I think that's that's kind of the spread. You got the legacy ones, you got the new new startups trying to build a better tech, and then the uh, integrated developer manufacturer model. Yeah. So Maria, over to you. Why don't we talk about steel since we've covered the others? Sure. So I would say in general, the steel industry uh, is characterized by sort of these large legacy players um, in the United States. U.S. Steel and Cleveland Cliffs are actually the only two companies that still operate blast furnace and basic oxygen furnaces. But there are a handful of other companies that operate these electric arc furnaces using scrap metal, Nucor being one of them, and Nucor is actually America's biggest steel supplier. Uh, and then you have kind of a whole range of equipment manufacturers. Midrex is a company that makes these direct reduced iron plants. And in terms of sort of the startup space, obviously Boston Metal, Electra are ones that that stand out. But I, my sense is that right now that a lot of the innovation is happening right now among sort of these established companies with support from government programs. If, if you're talking about Europe, especially, a, a lot of those projects are funded through European Union funding or, or kind of state-sponsored initiatives. I want to talk about some optimism here to round out the show. We've outlined some pretty interesting solutions, but some very clear barriers to getting those solutions implemented. But in industry, when you have a limited number of players, as you said earlier, Jeff, uh, if you can get a limited number of players to change their process, change their materials, you can have a huge impact across industry. So at some point, we'll see an inflection point. Can you outline a technological trend or a business shift that gave you optimism in your reporting around solutions in the industrial space? I, I was sensing a surprising amount of optimism on, on the hydrogen uh, front. I mean, maybe I'm kind of an optimistic person, but um, it, it, it seems like we're about to cross this this line from there really being no industrial-scale clean hydrogen production in the U.S. to there being a bunch in the next two, three years even. Um, I mean, yeah, a few projects could be done by the end of the year, but then there's a bunch more breaking ground next year. And uh, I talked to some folks like High Store is planning to spin up a whole new clean industrial uh, kind of complex in Mississippi for 2026, where they say they, ha they have industrial customers who want the green hydrogen by then, so they need to start building and they're going to store it in caves underground and stuff. And um, so, yeah, it's just, it's it's like shovels going into the ground in a way that was never true before. And I think that's, uh, you know, just a fundamentally new chapter for, for this industry. On the cement side, there's so much opportunity, as I mentioned, for getting some really uh, significant gains in, in reducing carbon intensity of cement with these relatively kind of 
low cost or even kind of uh, cost advantaged options having to do with, you know, not just, you know, uh, replacing a portion of that cement with, with other stuff that can kind of improve the structural integrity of it, but also in fundamental energy efficiency. Uh, I, I talked to Wholesim that's actually powering its electrical processes with renewable energy at some places. So there are some real short-term gains that are available right now, but also some of these kind of next-generation uh, cement chemistries and processes are getting ready to start piloting production right now. Um, Forterra is uh, making its coral-inspired uh, product right now at a plant in Redding, California, and is going to start being ready to bring it out to market for some early-stage opportunities in non-structural concrete next year. Uh, the process of building up from building a pilot plant to getting your new material or new process certified by the relevant bodies to getting it into those early projects is going to be happening, and we're going to be able to watch it unfold. I'd say one thing that gives me optimism is just the amount of public and community engagement around green steel in terms of, you know, advocates and organizations starting to put pressure on automakers, for example, to procure more green steel and sort of kind of bringing this issue out of relative obscurity and kind of making it more central in these conversations about the clean energy transition. So I, I think that's been really interesting to see how much engagement and interest there is beyond sort of the industrial energy expert side, but actually, you know, making this a very real thing. And I, I think if we back up like a year, say 10 years, um, you know, the conversation then was, okay, the solar, wind, electric vehicles, they, they seem promising. And then, ooh, industrial, who, who knows? Who even knows? Um, so I do think to, to come to this point where, you know, st steel companies actually have begun building green steel, even at small scale, and and cement makers have all these different options on, on the menu. That's, that's very different from where we were, I think, a decade ago, maybe even five years ago, in the kind of big, big picture sense that solutions are out there. Well, with that, great series, guys. This is Tough Stuff Week over at Canary Media, so go check out uh, their stories over there. They'll be rolling out these pieces throughout the week, and we'll reference many of them in the show notes. So, Maria Gallucci, Jeff St. John, Julian Spector, thanks so much. Thanks, Stephen. Bye. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Latitude Media and Canary Media. This episode was produced by me with help from Delvin Abawaje. Sean Marquand is our engineer, and our theme was produced by Sean Marquand. Latitude Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs across a range of sectors, including energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. And uh, hook us up if you like these conversations with a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. And uh, you can always find us all on social media. We're still out there posting links, talking about this stuff. So let us know what you think and uh, send a link to your friend or colleague if they would like this show. And we're so grateful to have you here. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Mm -hmm.